Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com. A look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. I saw a documentary this past Saturday night that blew me away. It is the story of two young boys, Idris and Shayon. They are black, and their parents enroll them at a prestigious, mostly white, college prep-type school. The boys are followed with cameras from age 5 all the way up to graduation. And along the way, we as viewers are treated to a fascinating study of race, parenting, psychology, and what it means to be a success. And by the way, the filmmakers behind the project are the parents of one of the boys. The documentary is American Promise. The filmmakers are Idris's parents, Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson, and they join me on the podcast today. Joe and Michelle, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Now, we're going to tackle the major themes and conclusions of this film in a little bit. So many questions I want to ask you guys, but first I want to get everyone listening up to speed. Take me through this process of what you did and how you went about making a documentary that literally spanned more than a decade of these children's lives? Well, we were filmmakers before this process started. Both Joe and I had worked on projects together and individually, narrative films and documentaries as well. Joe is a Sundance, a multiple Sundance alum with his films. And, um, you know, we've, um, we uh, have always juggled this um, desire um, to be uh, visual storytellers um, and have had often to balance it with the need to, you know, pay our bills. Mm. So we're also both professionals. Um, um, uh, Joe's a psychiatrist and I'm an attorney. And uh, at the time back then, you know, we were juggling doing both at the same time and trying to figure out how to keep our craft going, um, knowing that, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to kind of make your own uh, independent work and survive on it, especially as you have a growing family. But we were big admirers also of the Michael Apted series, the Seven Up series. Okay. And um, when we entered the kindergarten class, this uh, college prep school, the Dalton School, uh, based on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, had, in addition to recruiting us to be or recruiting our son to be in the in the program, was also in the middle in the midst a mission that they had put in a couple of years prior to uh, his entry to diversify the school, to make the school look more like uh, New York City. And uh, we had been through the grueling process of looking at a a bunch of different types of schools, uh, certain public schools. We were very, we were disappointed. I was disappointed because I had wanted to be part of a public school uh, initiative, but I was disappointed to see it, how segregated the process was and how access to the quality education in public school depended on your geography and in some cases your race as well because of the gifted and talented programs, the way they, they laid out. Wow. So when we entered the school, we were excited um, uh, to be part of the initiative. And a couple of months into it, we realized that in effect, this diversity uh, initiative as well as the you know the high academic uh, achievement that was being um, that was being uh, pro- that was being um, uh, uh, shown to us and and exposed to our son, we realized that this was something kind of new and unfamiliar. We were both public school educated parents. 
we had gone to Ivy League colleges, but this was a new world for us. And of course, our filmmaking lens, our artistic lens kind of, you know, the, uh, uh, started to open and the antenna came up and we realized we might have a story here that mm -hmm. was worth documenting. And we kind of took some of the Michael Apted framework and said, why don't we do this over 13 years? Slightly different perspective to graduation from high school. But initially it was about chronicling diversity and chronicling diversity with various families, the two boys, but there were other people involved. There were three other girls involved of various racial and ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds from that same kindergarten class. Wow. And we decided to explore the experiences over 13 years. And the camera was really a response to being exposed to an unfamiliar world. So there were actually three other children who dropped out of the picture then. Yes, they dropped out of the project by the time we hit third grade. Wow. And um, we were that we were we panicked because we had an initial vision of what the film <laughs> was going to be like. We had not gotten much funding by then yet um, uh, with this approach, I guess, this diversity approach um, didn't seem to have a hook that uh, funders were interested in. And um, but then as many filmmakers, and I don't know if, you know, as many documentary filmmakers, you know, have to resort to, you have to be flexible when it comes to developing a story, especially if you're doing direct cinema, observational style work that we were leaning towards as we moved along the project, because we realized that's where the power of, of, uh, of the story uh, uh, lied and being able to do more observational work. So when we, when we were left with the two boys, we realized and as the experiences we were having as families, uh, we're really exposing the particularities of the African-American male experience with education. We realized that we could delve into something and have kind of a deeper story that could resonate uh, on multiple levels. Um, and we also realized at that point that as parents, um, we had some people who had started to look at some of the footage, especially one editor we were starting to work with who said, you know what, you need to be more part of the story because mm -hmm. your experience as well as parents um, was important and could really help drive some of the narrative. Now, in this film, we follow Idris and Shayon from childhood to young adulthood. It's very thorough, and you reveal a lot of moments along the way that aren't particularly happy, but in their very raw moments. I read somewhere that you wound up with about 300 hours of raw footage here. So how often were the cameras rolling and how did you decide when to roll them? How did you decide that, okay, this is a moment or this is a situation in these boys' lives where we need to be rolling? Well, we, we have 800 hours of, of footage. Oh, that's even, that's even more. <laughs> and, um, and so the initial thought is that we would check in – uh, for interviews now and then. But we realized that uh, that footage was not compelling. So we basically, if you if you look at the number of hours uh, per month, uh, it, it seems, the film feels like it's, uh, it, it was more present than it actually was. We, we probably shot a, an hour uh, a week on average. But there were months uh, uh, during which there were snow shooting. What mm -hmm. what what you'll experience when you see the film is the power of uh, of the observational or sometimes known as verite filmmaking style, where uh, early on we would 
early on, we would actually say, okay, what are the important moments? Uh, a graduation, uh, a presentation. But later in the film, uh, probably during middle school, we, we began to just pick periods of time when we could get access because we were not always granted access by the schools. And so we would just let a camera lie for three days. Uh, the cameraman would, would sleep in our, our living room. And, <laughs> and, and because of that, uh, moments which didn't, didn't seem on the surface to be impactful became very significant. Uh, uh, reviewing a paper, uh, cooking dinner. And so we realized as time went on that any moment could be significant. Uh, and so basically what you'll see is an increase in the filmmaking hours over time, particularly during high school, mm -hmm. a change in the way we interacted with the camera, uh, uh, increase in, in our openness and ex uh, acceptance of you know that process, and you'll see that in all of the the from all of the characters in the film. That's very interesting, and I'm curious too as to once all of that footage was compiled, who controlled the editing? Because obviously, you two are, are the filmmakers, and you've got a point of view that you want to express, but you're also parents. You also probably have you know, there's probably somewhere along the way, I'm sure there were conflicts between the messages that you were hoping to send or, or what you thought you'd get out of the documentary and then the things that were actually happening in your life. So I'm curious as to how did you guard against planning your own biases in the film and how did you work with your editors to kind of collaborate on this project to make sure it was as true and authentic as possible? Well, well, we, we controlled the editing. But not as much as we would have liked. <laughs> uh, the 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 issue is we, we our bias biases are are in the film. We we don't shy away from that. But what we also understood during the process is that we were the parents, and in constructing this puzzle, because there are certain conventions that are required in telling a story that we needed to make sure that other people's story uh, were, were uh, validated uh, before we, we took care of ourselves. In other words, if there was some uh, question of ambiguity or a, a, a need for a character to be uh, more fleshed out, it, it, was, it was very important that... Uh, the people that we entrusted in the film uh, were dealt with before we were actually uh, dealt with. What, yeah, yeah, I just want to dial back a little bit on this whole notion of, of biases and parent versus... Uh, on the one hand, of course, there was always that tension because, you know, it, it, it's a personal film and involves us and involves our son. But I, I, I challenge this notion of truth and authenticity and objectivity when it comes to documentary film because I view, uh, I view that, um, that uh, uh, form of storytelling as an art form. It's, uh, it's an artistic expression 
that always has a point of view, whatever the filmmaker, whoever the filmmaker is, they bring or he or she brings his or her point of view to how they texture, what texture they bring to the storytelling, what scenes are decided to be juxtaposed, what interviews and splices are edited. And there's always an expression of point of view. With our film, it is, of course, a personal expression because we're in it. It creates a certain, um, not just tension, but um, it's, a certain, uh, 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 it's a certain genre of filmmaking, right? So um, um, the biases are there, but biases are everywhere in all films is basically this, the, 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 the premise that I want to start with. And from us, it comes from this point of view of certainly parent filmmakers, but artists first. And the way we tried to shield, I, don't, I won't say it necessarily uh, to avoid bias, but to have a story that created complicated characters where everyone is given a space to uh, develop. Uh, uh, and is not overshadowed, overpowered, or where it becomes um, um, uh, a, a place where uh, we are able to share our vulnerabilities. Uh, it started really with the conversations we had with the editors. And we told our editors when they started to cut these direct cinema observational pieces to show no reservations or no censorship when it came to um, uh, representing our characters as parents that we as artists would keep that artist hat on and really look at the strength of the story and the strength of keeping these boys whole and being able to uh, show their coming of age in a way that really resonated on a human level and that would not turn people away because uh, they could sense that we were hiding something or, or uh, uh, one way or another. And also we felt that there was a strength in exposing our vulnerabilities. And I think ultimately we were very confident that as parents, we knew that our relationship with our son um, was a healthy and whole one and that we could take whatever was gonna happen with the film um, with regards to what that relationship might be, because we knew ultimately that um, Idris came out of this process uh, uh, a very um, uh, complete young man uh, with much, much, uh, um, uh, with a great, you know, future ahead of him. So, so the, the, the other issue for us is we have to look at the uh, of parenting. There is a a perception that parents and parents look this way, they sound this way, great parents talk a certain way to their kids. But most parents are flawed and they are flawed on a daily basis. But the reality is that doesn't make them bad parents. Uh, and so the, the reality is that uh, we grow as parents, we grow as teachers, we grow as students. And what we wanted uh, to to, to avoid is, is the stereotype. So we as parents did not come with a, a, a manual and we took that challenge uh, and we improved over time. So that's part of what this story is about. It's about watching our sons grow. Uh, I think the, the parents uh, struggle and, and we develop as parents. And actually our son, Miles, is a recipient of our growth. Uh, but likewise, uh, the schools grow. Mm -hmm. uh, Dalton is not the same uh, institution. 
and uh, that they were 14 years ago. And I think part of, I always go back to this artistic perspective. I mean, we push ourselves to, to create pieces that provoke thought where mm. the answers are not necessarily easy. I mean, there are, there are solutions, there are perspectives, but we really want to be able to provoke uh, uh, thought through the use of storytelling and so that people can be self-reflective about their own communities, about their own families, about their own relationships with their child, about, about race and about, you know, uh, notions of stereotype and complicated representations. So, I mean, ultimately, and you can't do that by, you know, by protecting yourself or, or, or protecting, you know, a certain image or representation that you want to come out because then it's shallow and you don't really get to, you don't really get to the meat of, 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 of what we're here on this earth for, you know, mm -hmm. to uh, engage in conversations that uh, can allow us to become better people, um, um, you know. To be sure, <laughs> this film is uh, not just about Dalton, uh, but it's about uh, the city of New York. It's about Atlanta. It's about the police uh, force. It's about NBC. And and, uh, and I think- Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I don't think uh, the issues that we raise here, which have to do with uh, implicit bias, how people are, se are seen, or uh, uh, are, are uh, I think they're ubiquitous. And I think that the great thing, and I don't normally talk about the great things in America, is that we are having this dialogue, however difficult it is, at a faster rate than the Europeans, for example, who do not have this dialogue. And every four years, you'll see Paris in flames or England in flames. And that's because the dialogue is not uh, sincere. And uh, and it's it's a much slower acceptance of the fact that uh, that inequities exist, uh, unconscious bias exists, uh, and it and it must be dealt with in a meaningful way to, to for change to happen. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. I'm with Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson, the filmmakers behind the new documentary American Promise, in select theaters now and running on PBS in February. I have so much I want to ask you guys uh, about this documentary, and I will put in a spoiler alert right now because I do want to delve into moments that occur throughout the film. And, and the first thing is the subject of race here. This film, when I look at uh, the promotion of this film and, and the website, it, it's being billed as an examination of the complications of race in the growth of a child. And when I watched, and again, I'll, you know, I'll just say right off the bat, I'm a white male, so I'm on the outside here in terms of really understanding these experiences. But as I watched, I was very tempted to look at every moment as some sort of a reflection on race or reflective of racial issues. And at the same time, I had to kind of resist that because I felt like there really there's so much going on in every scene between parenting, schooling, the, the individual strengths and weaknesses of the children that you discuss here. So I'd like to ask you guys... In your mind, how much of the moments that we saw in the film are directly affected by the race of the boys involved? So, uh, let me just say this: we we uh, we we first see this as a film about boys growing up, and uh, 
and it's a human story. Now, Absolutely. Now, uh, and that's why it resonates with uh, a large number of people. But the reality is uh, race is uh, a part of our everyday lives. And so we, we, uh, we actually went through that press kit and, and tried to um, reformat it so that, so that uh, people would sit there and, and, and be aware of, of uh, the, the, the coming of age story. But but I, I I will remind you is that just the fact that you have a middle class black family on screen is racial. Mm-hmm. We we almost never exist as an entity uh, on TV. I mean, people often recall the Cosby's or uh, Bill. Uh, what's it? Will Smith. But that was twenty years ago. <laughs> but but though and so. Just the act of being there is a significant statement about uh, race and class. So, although we we uh, it may have been uh, uh, pitched as a story about race, uh, it's a story about humans first. So, but mm-hmm. story about adolescence and middle school and and growing up. Uh, but uh, race is a part of that process. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that race is always at the undercurrent of of our relationships, of, uh, you know, uh, what we seek to prioritize uh, when we speak to our son and give him certain senses of validation and how to kind of see the world. So it's really an undercurrent. But it doesn't mean that, you know, other experiences are not layered on top of that you know, or other, or other perspectives as parent. I mean, there are certain, you know, universal things that we all experience. Um, we all want the best education for our children. Um, we, you know, um, we all doubt ourselves as parents. Are we doing the right thing or not um, with regards to, you know, uh, what we want for our child and how we interact? Um, we, we all want the best schools, but, you know, um, how do we in- interact with teachers? And we all have personal idiosyncrasies that define mm-hmm. our experiences in life. However, there are particularities that our boys face that um, you know really need to in 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 this country and now need to take front and center um, on a number of levels, especially with regards to education. Um, the uh, statistics are staggering. Uh, our boys face uh, uh, um, obstacles of perception that really impede them from being able to realize their full potential. And we as parents have to navigate those waters. Every story is a minority story. Every story is particular. Um, um, What our task is, whether as a novelist or storyteller or filmmaker, is really to make those particular stories universal. And it's through making the universality and finding the common humanity that then that particular becomes universal and then we can connect and hopefully, you know, uh, uh, chip away at stereotype and assumptions um, on a broader level. That's a great point. And, and you know what's interesting is I felt a really interesting yin and yang when it came to, uh, when it came to your son, Idris. There are scenes uh, individually where each of you try to impress upon him the significance of his race. And one that really stood out to me was, Joe, when you sat with Idris after on the day of President Obama's inauguration and you're sitting with him that night 
and you're telling him a really painful story about your dad and how he was treated. And watching as a viewer and, and, and with the group that I watched it with, we, we noted that it it seemed like Idris was listening, but it didn't necessarily seem like he was it was really hitting home. But then when things would happen directly to him, like when a cab driver turns him down in the city, presumably because of his race, he reacts very strongly to that. And I'm curious as to whether that was one of the things that you guys were trying to address in the film, but that it's a classic example where kids, uh, regardless of issue, are generally most affected by what happens to them directly. It's, it's one thing to hear about these kinds of issues. It's another to experience it. Well, you know, you know when, when I was preaching to my son, <laughs> uh, after I read the manual, I, I, I learned that that doesn't work. But, 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 but let, me, let me assure you, he wore that Obama T-shirt for six months. That's right. That's and, right. And, uh, and, and also that scene, the cab scene, sort of um, exemplifies what, I, what we were saying earlier. You have to give them the tools to deal with yes. uh, events like not, uh, not being picked up by, by a cab. Because if you don't, they explode. They don't, they're not, they're not, they're not able to process it in a meaningful, complex way. And they, they do it that their attempts to cope with that kind of rejection, uh, becomes a, a liability for his future. Right. They see it as a rejection of their entire selves, as opposed to being able to create a critical analysis of that, that a rejection is a rejection of the, of the perception of who they are. And our mm-hmm. task as parents is really to work through making that distinction, that when you go out that door, it's going to be the perception of who you are that's being attacked, not your person. And, and uh, that's a very difficult line to, you know, to, 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 to ride. Um, but I do want to I do want to kind of uh, state that while it may not seem that Idris was listening to what Joe was saying, I think that's where our frustration as parents, we need to have the patience and keep the mantra going because something does sink in. They may seem like they're not listening, but ultimately, you know, they absorb what we tell them. And it's very important to keep the preaching going so that they do have something to fall back on when these experiences do happen to them. So, so let me and argue Joe, with what, you, what? Michelle, because I, uh, the reality <laughs> is this. I said like preaching and, and uh, I don't have to preach to him. Well, I think what you're saying is that we, we have to create a narrative for our yes. boys. And, uh, and a narrative means uh, giving them uh, a history, uh, a, a story which allows them to develop a better sense of who they are. And, uh, and so that's different from, from preaching. That the, the construction of a narrative in these boys' lives begins very early. Begins when and you're Joe, reading. I will say... That, uh, you, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned it because the, the first thing that I noticed after that scene where I felt like Idris wasn't listening was the shirt he was wearing was an Obama <laughs> shirt and you saw it on him for the next few months. So it's, that is a really interesting point. And, and it, you're right. It is, it's kind of the long game of parenting as opposed to the short. Right, um, right. One point that I think you guys made very effectively in this movie is the importance of expectations. So in the film, the other child, Shayon has to leave Dalton because of academic struggles and winds up at a mostly black public school while Idris remains at Dalton, the mostly white private school. And we're told at one point that the graduation at Shayon's high school is very strong for public schools, but pales in comparison to Dalton. Yep. So 
how much of that is a public versus private issue? How much of that is a black versus white issue? How much of that is a rich versus poor issue? So you ask these <laughs> questions, you ask us to quantitate that. And we, we cannot, but listen, this is what we can say. The expectations uh, from our public schools are very low. And, uh, and, and, and if you look at those expectations in the city versus the suburban and parochial schools, uh, uh, they're low. Uh, low in the inner city versus uh, parochial. We, we don't believe that uh, e- even with the, the racial mix, the socioeconomic mix, uh, there are other countries which expect more of their kids now, we hear about Common Core, we hear about uh, uh, No Child Left Behind, but you can't set uh, high goals for inner-city kids and poor kids without providing them with a couple of things. Everyone talks about the structural requirements, but you must uh, have a high-nurturing uh, nurturing environment. I think the bottom line is we the type of expectations in academic and uh, 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 rigor and intellectual stimulation that a place like Dalton provides or like these college prep schools provide should be accessible to all. There are countries that have that standard for all of their public schools and uh, all children have access to that. Um, and uh, that's that would be the ideal. I, as a parent, would not want, I don't want to be forced to make these, these types of choices. But the, the society in which we live in, with the type of, uh, of, of focus that's put on education, we are forced to make these type of decisions. And one more thing I want to say is, these college preparatory schools, they prepare our leaders of, uh, of the future. And not just our, our leaders across the board, whether it's in the arts, in the cultures, in entertainment, in, in business, uh, in politics. And that's all of all racial backgrounds. Uh, uh, that it prepares. Our civil rights leaders send their children to these schools because they understand the type of advantage that this provides in terms of opportunity for their children uh, uh, later on. And, um, you know, it's a shame that it be accessible to only, you know, the 1%. So uh, I really, you know, challenge um, uh, all public school education (coughs) and policymakers to really uh, figure out how is it that we can provide that type of rigor uh, and expectations across the board to all our children, w- w- along with providing the social and emotional support that uh, these children need to be able to realize their potential. I think that expectations come into play in so many ways in this movie. And you've got the public versus private school dichotomy there. But then I think there's also, you know, obviously parental expectations. And there's a, a big difference between you guys' as parents and Shayon's parents. And I thought it was fascinating towards the end of the film, because again and again, giving away the, quote, ending of the film, but Shaun gets into SUNY Fredonia, which I'm actually familiar with, having lived up in Buffalo for a few years, finds school, and he's thrilled and proud to be there. And his parents, I think, are are thrilled mostly because he's he's made it through. He goes through a lot of really big family struggles in this movie, and he gets through it, he gets into school, and he could not be prouder. Idris, we see him in the film getting rejected from most of the schools that he applies to, but he gets into Occidental, which is a very good school. And in that moment, and, I'm, and you guys are nodding, so I know you guys <laughs> agree with this. But in that moment, 
there's palpable disappointment across the board from both the two of you and from Idris. So how do you what let me ask you this. What is the I, I think you could look at that as a viewer and take it a couple of ways. I could see where, you know, there's the point of the importance of setting high expectations because ultimately Occidental is a better school than Fredonia. Oh, yeah, no and doubt. And will likely wind up with a better college education, have better prospects for future employment and all that. At the same time, then there's the goal of, you know, if, of, of where, you know, just personal happiness fits in and, you know, how to make sure that that's not getting lost in the shuffle. So I'm curious because obviously that dichotomy is in there for a reason. I'm curious as to how you both as parents and filmmakers view that lesson. <laughs> well... <laughs> Uh, so, so let me say, I start off the scene by saying how disappointed I am, which is not addressing your question, because that disappointment was really a disappointment with the s- system. Uh, let me say this, that Idris scored in the top five, uh, three per four, I don't know, percent of on SAT scores. He was a solid B, B-plus student at, uh, at, uh, at, at Dalton, which is a, a very rigorous school where Half the students score above 2,200 on the SAT score, uh, as an SAT score. And he did it while being diagnosed with ADHD late in his childhood. Uh, I had a learning challenge. He would played varsity basketball. He was one of the top scorers. He was an uh, um, uh, all-star at, in the Ivy League. Uh, and so we, we were disappointed that... Uh, 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 some of those schools did not choose him. Schools in which he was in the top 25 top quartile of their students. Yet, yet uh, a school like the University of California or UCLA has 46 black men out of 29,000 students. Uh, 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 they have the lowest graduation rate of, of, of any uh, school for uh, college athletes like uh, less than 50%, I think it's 30% of, of Cal students uh, are are uh, graduates of that, that school. So, you know, uh, I'm not sure why he, he wasn't considered a, a, a possibility for those schools. But, but you know, I, I thought that the playing field was on, on level, not level, and, and he wasn't seen by college uh uh, some college admissions officers uh, as a person who struggled to, uh, through a number of obstacles and succeeded. But that being said, uh, we were swept up in this competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, uh, as in the film, there is a process and we, 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 we recovered. Uh, yes. Occidental is a great place for him to be. It's small. Uh, it's a lot of individualized work going on, a lot of research. Uh, and, and so he is thriving there. He's, uh, he's uh, undecided, but he's looking at the cognitive science and, and possibly pre-med studies, taking pre-med courses. He's doing well in those courses. He's, he's increasingly confident. His, uh, his uh, critical thinking and, and uh, executive functioning skills are... Are, are blossoming in that environment? I think that, you know, that scene and looking at that parallel for me is, you know, uh, this was a teaching moment for us as parents as well. 
He made his arguments that were very sound about the school. We didn't know that school that well. Um, and again, as you see, as parents, we were swept up in that. But it's really a teaching moment for us. And I think it allowed, and this I think, these rejections and why we actually expose that, I think it's very important to demystify that whole college application process as well. It's important to kind of burst those doors open so we know what parents are going through, what kids are going through, what these uh, 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 acceptances and rejections mean. But for me, it's also an indication of resilience. You know, we look at that pain as a point of resilience and a teaching moment for everyone involved and that we all survive it. And ultimately, it seems like the best decision is made. He's in the best place that he should be, the one that's the best fit. And um, we learn from our, from our kind of, you know, missed expectations. In terms of the parallel, you know, the boys went through such different kind of, of um, kinds of, of uh, obstacles in those last four years of their lives, uh, of their, of their mm -hmm. high school uh, education, that, um, you know, as parents, you have to kind of adjust your your not just expectations but your focus and priority on what needs to be important for that child at that moment and i think that that's what kind of those parallel journeys uh exemplify you know and that each one will have his or her path um um uh and and you know get to a point of of, of uh, realizing that their, their potential or what they want to do on their own pace mm. One of the reasons why I really took to this film was that I think on some level it – while you guys obviously have very strong points of view and opinions, the film itself really avoids making any grand overt conclusions. And you talked about the, the verite style. You mostly just experience the lives – as you're watching this film, you mostly just experience the lives – of these boys as they go. There really isn't a whole lot of commentary. Every now and then, you know, one of the school officials or, or perhaps one of you guys kind of present a theme or, or talk about the issues. But for the most part, you really leave that open-ended. And I'm curious, as a filmmaker and as someone with a definite point of view, and, and you know, obviously talking to the two of you today, you can, you know, you understand this is, these are obviously issues that you guys think about all the time or else you wouldn't have made a film about it. How do you... How did you resist the urge to be too heavy-handed or too overt in getting the messages you wanted to get across? Well, I think that for me, it was really about pursuing the artistic craft. And for, for me, I enjoy most the stories and the films that don't preach to me, that don't, don't, don't have this heavy-handed advocacy uh, uh, perspective, because then it becomes a different, it becomes a different piece. And mm -hmm. we were really interested in developing a story arc that was true to, you know, to universal story, uh, uh, storytelling methods. And we were very much invested in um, creating this longitudinal arc that really looked at the coming of age of these two boys, because ultimately our real goal at the end was to really be able to express um, uh, these boys and to show who, who they were, to be, to, for them to be seen for who they were. And that meant really uh, uh, pursuing a storytelling uh, uh, approach that didn't preach. You lose certain audiences when you become too preachy. 
And when you tell your message and you drill down on your message, you end up at times just preaching too much to the converted. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I have full faith in the power of storytelling where things are open-ended and you can uh, let conversations happen where hopefully the most constructive solutions happen. And we really wanted people to connect to all of the characters as human beings first and their experiences. And that really means taking a step back uh, from that heavy handedness um, um, in the process. And I think I have to, you know, we give credit to our editors for having that same kind of, of a vision and outlook and be able, being able to fulfill that through how these scenes are constructed. And I think ultimately a film that uh, stays faithful to that has a much longer uh, shelf life or longevity because you're talking about universe there are universalities uh, um, that connect the story as opposed to messages that may only be um, um, relevant to that particular period in time so I think there's a, 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 an aspect of longevity that happens and I think it's only by doing that kind of storytelling that you're able to have these multi-layered you know, uh, uh, messages or not messages, but multi-layered, you know, themes in the film that people can can kind of uh, sink their teeth into um, because we've worked on subtext. We worked on, you know, the overt text as well, but we also worked on the arc of each of our characters so that um, people could connect. Um, we've had people watch the film uh, uh, more than once or come back to see it more than once and see other things in the mm-hmm. film and in some cases things we didn't even see and that at times is just so satisfying because it means that you've actually created a work of art um, um, that can be you know uh, enjoyed and deconstructed on multiple levels. I think that's a that's a fascinating point and and I think probably the biggest triumph of the film is that you know and and, and you referenced this uh, earlier on in the podcast that you know it's it's being promoted almost as a film about race but <laughs> you can't explore race over more than a decade without uh, delving into other issues as well, be it parenting, be it child psychology, be it education. And the fact that the film isn't preachy and and is not overt with a specific message about race, I think allows all of those other issues to play out. And I know it's why for my group that was what really led the discussion afterwards was that there was so much to talk about. You know, there were so many things that you could – take away from the film. So congratulations on that. And uh, this is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. She is Michelle Stevenson. We have lost Joe Brewster, who had to go. But Michelle is still here with us, uh, parent and filmmaker. And in the case of her latest documentary, both at the same time. It is American (laughs) Promise, which uh, is premiering on TV on PBS in February. Is that right? Yes, we'll be on POV, uh, the acclaimed series, uh, PBS series, on February 3rd. Terrific. Now, I wanted to use uh, just a few minutes here at the end to uh, do what we traditionally do in the final segment of this podcast, which is asking our guests for their advice for young storytellers. And, you know, in addition to this film, this documentary, obviously, uh, you know, you've spent many years now in the film industry, in addition to working a different career. So I'm curious as to what you tell young filmmakers, specifically those who want to make documentaries and try to make a career out of it. Um, uh, I think the first and foremost in terms of the experiences that we've, you know, we've had along the way is 
patience, <laughs> patience and seeing, you know, this, this uh, career, this approach to storytelling as a marathon and not a sprint. And, and I mean, I think the film is kind of an example of that, giving that it's a 13 year journey um, that we uh, end up with this product, but it's really about patience, resilience, flexibility, um, um, and passion. Um, and uh, understanding it as a long journey and that um, uh, sometimes the mistakes that happen or the obstacles that happen uh, very often are really opportunities. What were the biggest challenges that took place over the 13 years? Uh, Well, they were multiple. I mean, I think for us, the biggest challenge was, of course, wearing this parent and filmmaker hat for me and uh, constantly constantly questioning myself about whether um, I was doing the right thing as a parent uh, by doing this film. Um, And uh, the answer for me along the way ultimately became an understanding that the camera became a therapeutic tool for us. Hmm. It became a tool that allowed us to process our experiences and become very self, more self-reflective, but also engage in dialogue that allowed our son to be more self-reflective, that I think has given him certain tools to analyze the world and perceive the world, that if the camera weren't there, I think um, um, he would not have had that kind of uh, uh, level of deep you know, um, uh, introspection. Mm. And so um, it ultimately became a beneficial tool for us. I think some of the other challenges that we faced um, I wouldn't necessarily call them challenges, but I think this is very important for young storytellers in the documentary field who are interested in, in direct cinema and observational work, is the, really the importance of building trust. Um, trust uh, with the institutions, trust with our other uh, uh, subjects, the Summers family, uh, Shayon, um, and a lot of that work is done off camera. And it's really about investing and ultimately really respecting and loving, you know, uh, uh, the other people in your film, Mm. because that's the only way that you really are able to get these amazing moments of vulnerability, of exposure, and uh, uh, when that trust is built. And it's a trust where the other character or the other subject feels comfortable enough to expose expose themselves um, and expose all of their flaws as opposed to having to have a guard up, uh, uh, which you sometimes see in films. You can tell when people are not um, completely being themselves. And uh, that trust takes a long time. It takes a time and it it takes an investment in in the people's lives and in being interested in, 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 in who they are and what their journey is. And uh, it's funny, the very first moment of the film is Shayon, uh, I believe a 16-year-old Shayon looking into the camera and, and saying, you know, what do I think of this documentary? I don't care. And I'm imagining that that's a moment that could only happen because he was so used to everybody being around because that respect had been gained. Yes. Yes, and we gave him that, you know, that, that space to do that. That's actually a self-interview because when they started high school, we gave both Idris and Shayon cameras, uh, flip cameras to document their own uh, experiences and give them some form of agency. And Shayon kind of took that to heart. We encouraged them to do self-interviews. And, um, um, you know, that was one of his. And we figured, you know, we should 
open it up with that so people see, you know, their perspective on it. I don't, I think they respected us. I'm not sure that they, they really believed this film was going to be as good as it was. At least Idris has already told me that <laughs> he had different uh, ideas about, you know, uh, what this film was and was actually quite pleasantly surprised at how well it turned out. Yeah, I liked uh, I liked that moment where he's he's using the documentary to try to impress a girl uh, <laughs> at some point in high school. I thought that was a, probably a nice turning point for him when he realized, oh yeah, this could be this could be good for me. Um, one last thing I wanted to ask you, Michelle. Uh, you know, certainly, I don't think you can you can ask about a, a documentary that takes 13 years to make without uh, delving into the financial aspect of it. And I'm curious, you know. Knowing how difficult it is to survive as a documentarian, how much of a challenge was this financially? I, I saw that you had um, applied for a variety of grants, I think, and received a variety of grants through the process. And then um, even last year, there was a successful Kickstarter campaign that raised $50,000 for the score and, and for editing. So I'm curious as to how you approached that part of it as a producer as well as a filmmaker. Uh, that that was, you know, this is, oh, this is probably another piece of advice for uh, uh, storyteller filmmakers is that you should not resist wearing multiple hats because as an independent filmmaker, you are going to be obliged to wear multiple hats and become pretty proficient in them. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, you know, our grant, you know, our, our funding cycle and our funding, you know, access to funding didn't really happen until after, after we were about halfway through the film. Wow. Um, those first seven years were really um, uh, our own, you know, uh, independent resources and favors from friends that uh, allowed us to continue the process of, uh, of filmmaking. But I think once we were able to cut very poignant scenes and a trailer a fundraising trailer that kind of hit points that were really kind of strong and compelling um and also there was kind of a synergy with the question of black male achievement kind of being in the zeitgeist of the foundations uh foundation world um there was an intersection there of interests and that's kind of when we were able to gain um, um greater momentum around the funding and then that allowed us to get, and then what happens is you get a little bit of access. For example, we were accepted into a program for filmmakers of color at Tribeca called Tribeca All Access. It wasn't a monetary uh, uh, program. It was a program that allowed us to have access and network with other, with foundations and funders. And then the ball started rolling from there. Um, it's, all, it's all about, you get validation from one institution and then others kind of follow mm. along the way. So it's about, you know, which funder is going to take that initial risk. And it's very important to have a strong trailer or visually compelling material so that they feel that they're not really taking the, uh, as much of a risk um, um, as they might be. So the visual material is really important. Um, and uh, again, this perseverance and sense of mission and passion about what story you're telling is really important as well. And, um, you know, by, the, by halfway through the film, then the funder started to come and really the support, you know, continued through the end of, uh, uh, of our production. Could you have finished the movie without that influx of grants? Oh, we, we, you know, knowing as, st as stubborn as we are, and we, I know <laughs> we know ourselves, I'm sure we would have. I'm not sure the product would have been as, as good because, mm. you know, our funding really allowed us to get top notch um, editors 
who know Verite uh, uh, editing and uh, their perspective and their uh, skills were indispensable to our being able to tell uh, an important story. And what's really important, and I've seen, you know, uh, 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 big filmmakers such as, as, you know, Steve James and others talk about this in the same way that writing is rewriting. When it comes to observational documentary filmmaking, editing is re-editing. And to be able to have, and, but also, unfortunately, editing is also the largest part of the budget. Editors right. are not cheap. And to be able to have the luxury and opportunity to work and rework stories and to go one thread and see that it doesn't work and be able to restart and do a different uh, perspective, a different approach, is really, uh, uh, um, is really a gift. Mm. And we were allowed, we were able to do um, and that allowed us to kind of cancel certain, you know, perspectives that we were convinced were going to be the right way to go and realize that it wasn't working and we're able to restructure, you know, our, our story. So um, those are really important. So we would have been able to finish. Would it have been, you know, as good a product? I don't, I don't, I have my doubts because, yeah. you know, unfortunately money and funding are, are indispensable and certainly to be able to have a, uh, a team that um, that is uh, top notch. Yeah. Uh, finally, Michelle, I always like to give my guests the last word. Is there anything that you wanted to add that we haven't touched on that you feel will be relevant to the conversation? The only thing I'd like to add is um, this is also another part of uh, the new age of filmmaking, in that you know our, the film is really a conversation starter. We have a, a, a very robust community engagement campaign that includes, you know, transmedia platforms where we have multiple uh, um, reiterations of our footage on our website or what we like to call it our digital ecosystem, where we reach out to youth educators and parents and caregivers with material, some of which did not make the film, some of which are continued conversations that we've had with experts that come into the form of a book called mm -hmm. Promises Kept. So we have a really robust transmedia campaign um, uh, that has been culled from all of the conversations, all of the material that we developed along the way. And because of this new digital age, we're really able to exploit those and provide platforms for people to really engage in the material um, in multiple ways. And you can get a sense of that campaign on our website, AmericanPromise.org. You can see the social me media work that we're doing on our Facebook page through our Twitter handle, which is Promise Film, and get a sense of, um, you know, um, of the larger uh, uh, work that's being done around the field of black male achievement and parenting and education. Mm. All right. That is Michelle Stevenson, filmmaker and parent in the documentary American Promise. You can catch it in select theaters now or watch it on PBS this coming February. Michelle, we want to thank you and your husband and fellow filmmaker Joe Brewster for your time today. Thank you so much. And the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.